1 Timothy chapter 2. I want you to stand please as we read verses 1 through 7 with our concentration being today verses 5 through 7. Hear the words of the living God. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is the word of the Lord. May it be seated. I think many of you would know that it's easy for organizations, corporations, institutions to somehow lose sight of their mission. To lose sight of the purpose and meaning for Why they exist. We have tons of examples of events like that. You may have experienced that maybe in a company you've worked for. Maybe the one you're working for now. You're like, man, this is the mission on the wall. This is the mission on our letterhead. But we are so far from it or nobody even knows what it is anymore. It's easy to lose focus of the priority and urgency of what we are called to do even as a church. But the church must never forget her mission. This is why we have these strong exhortations in these pastoral epistles. The church is not to exclude people from the gospel, from its gatherings, from its purpose. We're not to become some elite and exclusive club. It is one of the things that Paul was addressing and dealing with that Timothy was charged with. There were those who were trying to preach a different gospel, who were following um, myths and, and, and endless genealogies and speculation and a bunch of silly things, and, and we're creating this kind of alternative gospel that only the enlightened and elite could participate in. Maybe you had the first-class citizens and the second-class Christian citizens. It's easy for the church to lose her mission by prioritizing comfort, by prioritizing convenience and safety and looking at what are the preferences of the people. What do the people want? Let's give that to them. But we must never do those things at the expense of what we have been called to do. Now last week, we see Paul beginning to exhort Timothy here to remind God's people of their purpose, to remind them of their mission That the order of public worship is of first importance. And he tells us here in this passage exactly what is of first importance. And that is what? Prayers, right? Prayers are to be made. All kinds of prayers are to be made. Prayers, supplications, intercessions, thanksgiving. We said, let's not get caught down on trying to explain what all of those things are. The point is, all kinds of prayers are to be made. All kinds of prayers are to be offered up and all kinds of prayers are to be made for all different kinds of people. And he lists what some of those kind of peoples are. He says, especially for kings. 
Especially for all people in high positions, rulers, those who are in authority over you. God's people are to pray. The primacy of prayer is of utmost import for the church of Jesus Christ. We cannot forget our mission. We cannot forget our priority. Back in verse 15 of chapter 1, Paul tells us what is priority, right? What is the important message that we have? The important mission we must be convey that Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? To save sinners. Spent a lot of time on that a couple of weeks ago. That's our message. That's the mission to seek and save those that are lost and extend this gracious offer of salvation through Jesus Christ alone to everyone. First order in the church, prayer. We cannot neglect it. It's why we gather every morning at 1035 every Sunday to pray. And I invite you to get here a little bit earlier that we spend some time in prayer together. God is moving in our midst and God is doing something special there. We're praying for everyone. That's what we're instructed to do. Notice that the prayer is not exclusive. We don't just pray for the rich people that can give big fat offerings to the church. We're to pray for not just the up and out, but the down and out also. We're to pray for the salvation of our neighborhoods and communities. To see whole families come to faith in Jesus Christ. We're to pray for our municipal leaders, our local city governmental officials, mayors and council members and law enforcement officials. We're to pray for our state government, our governor, his administration, our state congressional leaders. We're to pray at a national level. Instead of just complaining about the president, we should be praying for our president and his administration and all of his cabinet members, senators and congressmen, all those who enact laws, those that are part of the judiciary. We should be praying. We should be on our face before God for them, for God to save them, for them to be people of wisdom and who rule in righteousness and there's a reason that Paul gives us here that why, why that is important that we'll look for in a moment because it's the grounds for our call, the basis for our call to prayer for all people and the proclamation of the gospel to all. For the scope of our prayer is to be expansive. The content of our prayer is to, is to be audacious and bold. Because no one is outside the bounds of the prayers of God's people. No one is beyond the arm of the Lord to save. So we offer all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. All fall under the sphere of the church's prayer offering. As I prayed for this morning during a time of prayer, we're to pray for more prayer. Prayer begets prayer. As you pray, the more you want to pray. It's as if that God just continues to fill that well of, of prayer. Where it just overflows from your life. It's the kind of revival we need in the church of Jesus Christ. Prayer. I was astounded a few years ago. We had someone visit us who told me after the service. They had visited, I believe it was around 12 to 15 churches in our city. And they said, you're the first church that I hear someone praying. I said, you're out of your mind. There's no way. And he goes, oh, I'm serious. There's no prayer happening in the church. Yet Paul is saying, first, here's what you're to do. In the order of public worship, as the people of God gather, pray. Prayer. All kinds of prayer. 
We need to pray for peace. Why? We need to pray so that the gospel would flourish in advance in our city. Now let's talk about the basis of our call to pray because Paul gives us four. We looked at two last week. We're going to look at the other two today. This is the basis for our call to all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. And here are the four primary things he mentioned. Now the first two here are these. The first reason is found in verse 2. Why do we pray for all kinds of people? Why do we offer all kinds of prayers? Well, here's what needs to happen. For God's people to live peaceably. For God's people to be able to live out the faith and the implications of the gospel so that the gospel can advance, so the gospel can be furthered and more people can hear the good news. This is pleasing to God. This is something that every believer is to be engaged in and every believer should desire a quiet and peaceful life. Now, what does that mean? I don't believe Paul is advocating here for a nice, quiet, stress-free, suburban, middle-class life. That's not what's in view here. What's in view here is that we have a life where the aim of our prayer is for peaceful conditions. To what end? For the propagation of the gospel. For the propagation of the gospel. The aim of that prayer is for believers to freely live out their Christian faith and by their exemplary life and godliness, give opportunity to testify of Christ. We talked about this last week. We know that the church can thrive under persecution. We know the gospel can advance under persecution. But that is not the optimal position. The optimal position is for believers to be able to do what they're supposed to do, to live out the kind of life they're supposed to live out, all of the moral implications of the gospel, all that God tells us to do so people will see our lives and our our godly example and give us opportunity to herald the truth. Not in secret, not in fear for our lives, but freely and openly under the protection of the state. That's optimal circumstances. Not every believer has experienced that. Certainly not over the centuries and certainly not in parts of the world today. But we should thank God for any religious liberties we do have and pray for those so the gospel can go forth unhindered and freely. And that is, brothers and sisters, a good thing. The second reason is found in verses 3 and 4. That it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires what? all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We talked about this last week. This is God's benevolent disposition towards mankind. He does not desire for all men to perish. God does not delight in the damnation of and death of the wicked. But this is also not a verse that says that all people everywhere are going to be saved. That every single person on the planet will be saved. We talked about God's desires last week. We talked about God's decree. God did not decree for the salvation of all men. He decreed for the salvation of all of his elect. He decreed for the salvation of all of those who've been redeemed and atoned for by the blood of Christ. But God's heart, God's desires is for all men to come to repentance. For all men to come to the knowledge of the truth. And what Paul expresses here is not a contradiction, but a complementary truth. 
Keep in mind the argument that Paul is making here. Here's why it's important we read in context and why we go through books of the Bible. Paul's flow of his argument here is missional in focus. He is expressing the missional drive of the church. All kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. That the gospel is to be broadcast and spread and heralded indiscriminately, without exception, without discrimination. That means we only, only don't just take the gospel to those who look like us. We would only take the gospel only to those who, have, uh, uh, who are rich or celebrities or people of influence and fame. The gospel and this gracious offer of salvation is to be made to all. That's the argument. That's the focus here. So when we come to a passage like this, we need to see it in light of what Paul is saying here, but also what God's Word teaches concerning all these things. The point here is that God does not exclude certain kinds of people in His sovereign choosing and election. God does not only save the Jews, does He? No. In fact, Paul's making it clear in verse 7 here that God has appointed Him as as an apostle to the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? Not the Jews, right? It's like everyone else. It's like all of the other nations, all of the people of other nations. God does not only save the Jews. We looked at John's heavenly vision in Revelation chapter 7, which reflects this expansive, inclusive, and indiscriminate nature of God's redemption. Where John sees multitudes saved from every nation, all tribes, all people, all languages. So what does that mean for us? That means we don't withhold the preaching of the gospel from anyone. And that's perhaps what some of the people at Ephesus were doing. Some of these false teachers, some of those teaching a different doctrine and often to myths and speculations. We're not to do that. We're to indiscriminately pray for everyone and spread the gospel everywhere. Why? Because God desires for all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. You and I should be praying for that. You and I should desire that. You and I should work towards that end as well. So those are the first two reasons. Here are the second two that we're going to focus on today. The third reason that forms the basis of our call to make all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people is found in verses 5 and 6. And we'll label those in two categories, but we'll treat it as the third reason. God's oneness or unity and God's sovereign work in Jesus Christ. Look what he says there in verse 5. For there is what? One God. How many gods? One God. Now, we know for the Jews that wasn't a problem, right? This is their foundational theological affirmation. Every Jew knows this. There's only one God. All of them affirm, declare, and pray the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Every Jew prayed that. Every Jew knew that. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That word Shema is here, right? That's the first word in the Hebrew. Shema means to listen, but not just to hear sound waves coming into your ear, into your auditory canal. The understanding and implication here is that action would be taken based upon what is being heard. And that is that the Lord is one. It's not just a declaration of monotheism. For the Jew, they understood this, exactly what it meant. 
It meant that they were only to pledge allegiance to the God of Israel, the one true God, Yahweh. He's the only God. He's the only one we owe fidelity to and pledge allegiance to. And we cannot pledge allegiance to any of the false gods of the surrounding nations. There's only one true God. There only has ever been one true God. There will only ever be one true God. One God. The God of the Jews is not distinct or separate from the God of the Gentiles. These may be issues that Paul was dealing with that were rising up at the church there in Ephesus. Jesus is not a different God from Yahweh. The Father and the Son are one God. In fact, he addresses this aspect in a few of his letters. But let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 5 and 6. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all are all things and through whom we exist, the Father, and the Son, one God, one and the same. They're not two different gods. They're not two distinct gods. In fact, sometimes when people pray, I hear them pray, or they're talking about the Father and the Son, it sounds like they're talking about multiple gods, different gods. It's one God. There's only one God. There's not a pantheon of gods for which people are to select. We don't have options. There are not many paths that lead to the true worship of God. I don't care what our spiritual gurus say. I don't care what some of the fools that stand behind pulpits say. There is only one way to know the true God, and that is through Jesus Christ. There's only one God. Only one. And He's a jealous God. He'll not give His, His, His glory to any other. He refuses to share the worship that He alone is due. Isaiah 45, 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. It is the unapologetic claim that every believer should affirm and hold to and proclaim there is one God. Why do we pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people? There's only one God. Everyone else is a false god. Everything else is an idol. Something meaningless, empty, and futile that the Gentiles and the pagan nations are worshiping. And there is no salvation in any of that. There's only one God. And only one who is worthy of all the worship of all humanity. See, on the one hand, our faith is inclusive. Right? We're we're, we're saying that we're to pray and preach the gospel to everyone. Spread the seed far and wide, broadcast it far and wide. All are to hear the offer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But our faith is also exclusive. We don't offer people a variety of options. Hey, your God's kind of cool, you know, but pray to Him with kind of this understanding. And no, there's one God. And there's only one way to salvation, and that's through His mediator, which we'll look at in a moment. Now we look at our nation, right? This enlightened, civilized, sophisticated nation that is steeped in idolatry. Just because someone doesn't profess to serve Jesus Christ or says that there is no God doesn't mean that they're not worshiping a God or an idol. We know our nation's full of idols that are worshipped. 
money, fame, influence, status, power. On and on, comfort, sex, security, entertainment. We see a resurgence of uh, and a renewal of some spiritually enlightened things. I'm astounded at how many Christians are talking about crystals and energy and the, the force of energy in the world and how we can align ourselves to that to have optimal health. That is demonic. That is idolatry. That is panentheism. We're to reject and refute those things. Plurality, progressivism in the church, we're to refute that and reject it categorically. There is one God. Only one, brothers and sisters. The false gods of major world religions. And I know because I see how some Christians talk about these things. They think, well, right, they're, they're, they're still like, isn't Islam just worshiping one God? Yeah, the devil, a false god. Or the many gods of Hinduism and Buddhism. Even Judaism. Brothers and sisters, there's no salvation in practicing Judaism. Do you know that? There is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. It matters not that they believe in the Old Testament and the God of the Old Testament. If they've rejected Jesus Christ, there is no hope and no salvation in that. That is not an alternative way to God. And it's startling how many Christians talk about modern day Judaism as if that is an alternative to the gospel and a pathway to salvation. It is not. It's to damnation. The gospel message makes that clear. Apostolic teaching makes that clear. There is one God and there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ, Jesus. There's only one option for salvation. These are the exclusive claims of our faith. Verse 5, one mediator. What's a mediator? What's that all about? What does a mediator do? Well, a mediator is an arbiter. Mediator is someone who, who mediates for two parties that are opposed, are, are in conflict. They're the go-between, the intermediary, if you will. What's their, what's their aim? Well, it's to rep- represent both sides in, in hopes to bring them together to either to reconcile or to broker a settlement or perhaps a peace treaty or to end conflict between those two parties. You might have needed a mediator in the past. In fact, one of the roles I've had as a pastor for, for the last couple of decades is every now and again, I've got to mediate a conversation between a brother and a sister or brothers and brothers in the Lord that are at odds with one another. One has sinned against the other, and they just can't seem to come together and reconcile. So here I come to, to kind of bring both of those two parties together to bring them either to repentance or to reconciliation or whatever, uh, whatever need Uh, it needs to happen to bring these two parties um, to some resolution. Why do we need a mediator? What is that all about, this one mediator? Well, here's the truth that Scripture reveals to us. We need a mediator because we are at war with God. We've always been at war with God. And apart from Christ, we are at war with God. Our sin and rebellion has created an insurmountable rift 
a deep chasm of separation in the relationship between God and man. And there is nothing, absolutely nothing that we can do to bridge that divide. There is no amount of good works, good efforts, giving, law-keeping, nothing that we can do to heal that rift and to bridge that gap. Paul writes in Colossians 1.21, And you, he's talking to believers here, here was your state, here was your status prior to Christ, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's what we were, hostile in mind. Hostile in what sense? That every thought and intention of our heart was rebellion and wickedness against God. Romans 8, 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Well, how about a good person? Are they also at war with God? Well, I think we established recently there are no good people. Our definition of good is woefully short of God's definition of good. All are hostile to God. It is our default position. Hostility towards the creator. You and I are born sworn enemies of God, the giver of life. And every intention of our heart is rebellion towards our creator. We don't have to wonder who is the offended party in this mediation process. It's not humanity, right? It's God. It's it's God's law that has been transgress it's his holy and righteous requirements that have not been met he is holy we are sinful we need to be reconciled to god so how does that happen well someone needs to stand between god and man and bring these two parties together what we have always needed is a mediator to broker an end to the hostility to broker a peace treaty between god and man In the Old Testament, there was a system set up to help do this in a temporary way, in capacity. To to help bridge this gap so that God could interact and engage with those whom he had set apart and called his people, Israel. And that was through the sacrificial system. Through that, God could cover the sinful offense uh, of his people so that he didn't smite them. How many times did they deserve to be wiped off the face of the earth? But God set something in place that's a type and shadow of what was to come. To what end? So that the people could somehow be ritually cleansed, externally cleansed, so that God could mediate his work through them on the earth and bring about the final promise and fulfillment in Christ Jesus. That was through the animal sacrifices, right? Day after day, sacrifices would be offered. Day after day, the people of God would be reminded that their sin required punishment. That death was the payment that was required. And in lieu of them being killed, an animal was killed in their place. The, uh, the blood of an animal was spilt for their external and ritual cleansing. The blood of bulls and goats. Many, multiple offerings by the priests and the high priests. However, we we know that these things could not fully atone for the sins of the people. Oh yeah, externally they were clean, but the defilement of their heart remained. 
The blood of bulls and goats could never deal with that. And this high priest, by making atonement for the sins of the people, served as a type of mediator between God and men. But it was temporary. It was not permanent. It had to be done over and over again, continually. And here's the kicker. The high priest, oh yeah, he was a sinner too. And he had to make sacrifices for his own sins. That's how jacked up humanity is. We needed, however, a permanent solution. We needed someone who could intercede in a way that the high priests and the prophets and the priests and the kings of the old could never do. We needed someone who could broker a, mediate a permanent peace treaty. A true reconciliation between God and man and put this war with God to an end. A once for all time mediator. Brothers and sisters, without a mediator, we are lost. The situation is beyond hopeless. There's no other way. And that one mediator, Paul says, is the man Christ Jesus. Now, why does he call him the man? That's not the way we use that terminology. He's the man. He says he's the man, right? He's flesh and blood human. Why does he call him that? Well, the humanity of Christ, his incarnation, is an indispensable element of of Christ's capacity to function as our mediator. Why is that? Well, first of all, man is the problem, isn't he? And all of mankind suffers the same problem. This sin condition. This rebellion. This wicked heart. All of mankind. So Christ had to come as a man. Because a mediator is to be able to represent both sides equally. Well, how could he do that? Well, he's the divine son of God. So he can represent God. Can he not? But how is he going to represent man? He's to become like us, in order to do that. He adds to his divine nature, human nature, uniting both in one person so that he can represent God and man. Now, the writer of Hebrews, and we're going to go through a few passages in Hebrews, but but the writer of Hebrews makes a masterful case uh, for Christ being that mediator. Uh, Let's look at Hebrews chapter 2, 14 through 18. Since therefore the children... Share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Remember that. For surely it is brothers in every respect. Not angels that he helps. But he helps the offspring of Abraham. 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now that's weeks of preaching right there. But look at some of the things he says there. He had to be made like his brothers. Right? So he could be this, the, the high priest that actually could get the job done. He did not need to make an offering for himself. Why? Because he was sinless. He was perfect. We'll talk about that more in a moment. 
Right? And so that what? He can make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation is a nice big theological word. It simply means to appease the wrath of God. He appeased the wrath of God and satisfied the righteous requirements of God. And he had to become like us in order to be able to rescue us. In order to be able to offer himself as a sacrifice to appease the righteous and holy wrath of God that was due us. Without his mediation, without him being the propitiatory sacrifice, the wrath of God could not be averted. But what does Christ do? He turns the wrath of God away from us and he absorbs it on himself in his sacrificial offering on the cross. Now I want to encourage you to read chapter 8 of our confession on Christ the mediator. I linked it uh, in the notes there. Uh, our confession has a beautiful way that it summarizes uh, this mediatorial work of Christ Jesus. So I want to encourage you to read chapter 8 of the confession. Christ came as a man in order to perfectly obey the law of God. Again, something you and I could not do. In order that, to do that, he had to be born under the law to, to actually do it. God requires perfect obedience. God requires perfect righteousness. Who among us could obtain that? No one, right? But Christ did that for us. By doing what we could not do for ourselves, Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. To what end? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's what Christ did for us. We don't just talk about the death of Christ. It's the life of Christ that's in view here. For his time on earth, what did he do? He obeyed the Father. Perfectly. Incompletely kept the law of God, something you and I could never do. And as a man, Christ overcame every temptation that ensnared humanity. He executed this life with sinless perfection. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Yet without sin. This is why he can mediate for us. Hebrews 5, 7 and 9, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. How did he become perfect? Through obedience. Through his obedience and through his suffering. This is why the man, Christ Jesus, is the one mediator between God and men. But he is not only mediator by virtue of his sinless life, but by virtue of his sacrificial death. For his sinless perfection allows him to offer a once-for-all sacrifice to make atonement for our sins. To bring an end to that hostility, brothers and sisters. Paul writes in verse 6, it says that he gave himself as a ransom for all. That is packed with such profound implications. Christ Jesus gave himself. I love that. First of all, it tells us no one took his life. He willingly laid it down. He willingly gave his life. Almost as if it was planned and purposed, huh? 
John 10, 17, 18, Jesus himself said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. He lays it down. He gives it. Salvation is not God's plan B. This plan of redemption is the plan of God set in motion from before the foundations of the world. The Father, the Son, the Spirit purposed to ransom all of those whom the Father would give to Christ Jesus. 1 John 3.16, John says it this way also. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And that laying down of his life consisted of of Christ enduring unimaginable suffering on the cross for us. For his blood being spilt and shed to ransom all who are being saved. What does that word ransom mean? Why, why did he have to ransom? What is that ransom all about? When we talk about ransom and our understanding, right? It's, it's a payment that is made in exchange, right? For the release of of someone who's been held captive. Oftentimes we think of that in kidnapping situations, right? Someone is taken against their will, and now a demand is made, a ransom demand is made. Pay X number of dollars, and we'll let your son or daughter go free. This happens all the time in other countries around the world, uh, which is one of the reasons you're always cautioned before you traveled out of this country. Pay attention, right, to travel advisories. We know in Mexico here recently, right, two Americans were... Uh, taken uh, hostage, and they were killed, right? So we think of ransom in in those terms, and and it is a good way, I think, for us to begin to understand it. Because who is actually held captive? Who's held captive? We are, right? All of sinful humanity that is hostile to God, that is rebellious against God, we are held captive to what? To sin and death. We are bound. We are slaves to sin. Sin has mastery over us. So how will we be freed from the tyranny of sin, from our bondage and slavery to sin? Well, a ransom needs to be paid so that we could be freed from that. The problem is we cannot ransom ourselves. There's not a single payment you and I can make to free ourselves from that. I like how the psalmist states the case here in Psalm 49, 7-9. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price for his, of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. You can't ransom yourself. No other individual can ransom you from sin's tyranny and slavery to sin. But Christ's sacrifice is the ransom that paid for our freedom. Well, to whom did he pay this ransom to? To sin? Well, to some ambiguous thing? Who was this ransom paid to? To whom was the ransom owed? It's to God. It's to the Father. Now, I know there's some people who teach out there that the ransom was paid to Satan, and that's foolish. That's absolute rubbish. The ransom was not paid to Satan. Whose law was transgressed? It's God's law that was transgressed. Right? The payment for that sin is death. The ransom payment that to be made is the shedding of blood that could actually appease the wrath of God. That could only be paid by Jesus Christ. 
And he makes this ransom payment because his sacrifice satisfies the righteous requirements of God. Let's look again in Hebrews chapter 9. I'm going to read this little chunk of scripture here, 11 through 15. But please go back and study this passage. Read it slowly and soak in the glorious truths here. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. I want you to remember that phrase, securing an eternal redemption when we talk about the atonement here in a moment. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. Remember we talked about, right, these Old Testament sacrifices, these animal sacrifices could not cleanse the heart, but could externally purify an individual. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from what? Dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them. You could also use the word ransoms here. In fact, there's translations who who translate it that way. From the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This is the mediatorial work of Christ. His blood redeems us, cleanses us completely, sanctifies us thoroughly, secures for us our eternal redemption and inheritance. Hebrews 10, 14, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Isn't that awesome? That's what his sacrifice accomplishes. This is what it does. He saves us from God. By God, for God. Did you know you had to be saved from God? We don't think about that, do we? Our offense, our hostility was against God. What did we deserve but eternal punishment? God's holy wrath to be be meted out against us. Christ takes that upon himself to avert us from the wrath of God through his blood so that we could be his people. Heaven's praise consists of thanking Christ for his ransoming of his people. Revelation 5, 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people from, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Praise God. Christ is our mediator. Christ makes peace with God by his blood, reconciling us to the Father, and now you and I are at peace with God. No longer enemies. Aren't you grateful for that? Because in that war with God, you never win. Humanity does not win. We're on the losing end of that. But because of his sacrifice, we have these grounds now for making the confident prayers that Paul is instructing us to make here. Why can you and I make all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people? 
Why is it that you and I can pray to God and God actually hear us and answer our prayers? Because of Christ's ransom. Because of Christ's blood. His blood is what enables us to pass through the veil. To access the throne of grace. To plea for mercy and obtain the grace and mercy and help that we have need of. Apart from the blood of Christ, apart from the ransoming work of Christ, you and I have no access to the Father. There are no grounds for you to even pray anything. And beloved, this makes a distinction in the prayers of God's people and the prayers of those who are not God's people. God is not obligated to hear those prayers. People who Christ's blood have, have not redeemed and cleansed and made righteous have no grounds to pray to God and expect Him to hear them. So they may make trite little phrases, right, when they reply to a post on Facebook, prayers, or praying hand emojis. But if Christ's blood hasn't ransomed them, there's no grounds for God to hear their prayers. It's a sobering reality. But one that should fill a believer with great joy and confidence in prayer. God does hear us because of Christ Jesus, because of his blood. We have access to the throne room of grace to petition God because Christ himself gave himself as a ransom for us. Let me take just a few brief moments. We don't have a lot of time to spend here to address an aspect of Christ's atonement. Because Paul's phrase here is that Christ it became a ransom for all. Now we've dealt with that word all and its implications in this passage. Because Paul uses it four times to talk about this expansive work. This, this indiscriminate work of prayer and proclamation. So when we read Christ became a ransom for all. Does that mean that Christ's atonement and sacrifice pays for the sins of every single person who ever was, is now, and ever will be. Is this indeed a verse, a phrase, a statement that makes the case or an argument for universal or unlimited atonement? Now, we've had to work to define all. And in our defining all, we have understood that all here does not mean every single person without distinction but rather all kinds of people without exception. An indiscriminate grouping of people, all kinds of people. We're to pray for all kinds of people. We're to proclaim the gospel to all kinds of people. God desires, right, all people, all kinds of people to say, God does not show partiality. God does not just save one group of people and excludes another group of people entirely. In fact, in Corinthians, Paul makes the case that really God only chooses the losers. So if you're saved, welcome to the club, right? <laughs> the lowly things, the despised things of this world, that's us. Woo! That's God's team, right? <laughs> These are the kids who are chosen last on the playground. That's who we are, okay? That's why we don't get to boast. There's nothing awesome in you that God saw and says, I'm going to redeem that guy, that gal. Oh, she's super smart. They've got it all together. They're the one. Nope, 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 nope. That's the case Paul's making. Remember, his focus is missional. 
His focus is the missionary impulse of the church that must not be neglected. There is no room for exclusivity in terms of prayer and proclamation. So in defining all, we've defined it that way. The gospel is for all kinds of people. So here, when he says a ransom for all is not every single person, we know not every single person is saved, are they? There's no need for hell if every single person is saved. What of the doctrine of eternal punishment and damnation if everyone, if he made a ransom for all, then all will be saved. So we know it cannot mean that. And especially in the context of our passage here. Right? All will not be saved without exception. Christ's ransom is not paid for every single person, but all kinds of persons. And all the kinds of persons are all that God has appointed to eternal life. This is why we don't just look at one scripture and when we are trying to interpret it, we go, ah, if we don't get it, we need to look at other scripture. Scripture interprets scripture. And it's interesting that in this same letter, Paul uses this phrase all again, but now there is an important qualifier. First Timothy chapter 4, 10, two, verses, two chapters over. Paul writes, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Especially of those who believe. Same letter, written to Christians, using the word all, and referring to those who believe as the ones whom God is the Savior of. That's important. And that's in line with the way all is used in many other passages as well. We don't have time to go uh, through all of these. We'll have to do a separate teaching on that at some point here. Uh, But it's important we see that. And I know that there are some well-intentioned, lovely people, good, faithful Christians who see this a different way, interpret these passages a different way, that Christ's atonement was for the sins of all the people without distinction, okay? That the work of Jesus Christ, the shedding of his blood, could actually pay for the sins of all of humanity, past, present, and future. And I will concede that point His blood could do that. That's how powerful the atoning work of Christ is. But if you concede that, that that's all it is, then we have to talk about the the efficacious nature of the atoning work of Christ, the extent of his work. Why doesn't it save all people if it indeed was towards that end? We have to wrestle with that implication. And I think the best way of trying to answer this is by examining what was God's intention with the atonement? What what was the purpose of it? What was his plan for making atonement through Christ Jesus? Was it to make salvation possible for all men? Or was it to save? Does it save or does it just make it possible to save? Well, that's two different things, isn't it? It's two different things, and we have to wrestle with that. When we read these passages in Hebrews, which is why I told you a couple times, pay attention to the language there. Christ secures eternal redemption. That doesn't sound like a possibility or a probability, but in actuality. That Christ's redeeming work actually does something. Not possibly does something. Okay? doesn't just make salvation possible. Just why we can't shoehorn this word all to mean every single person without exception. 
And I know, we, we got all the other passages. Well, how about John 3, 16? For God so loved the world that he gave, right? Love the world. That's everybody. Well, I don't have time to break all that down right now. But once again, the qualifier there is what? All who what? Believe. That's not everybody. Has the whole world believed? I, mean, I must have missed that memo. I'm not trying to be sarcastic because I know there's some in here who hold to the, the particular view I'm arguing against right now. But I want you to wrestle with that. Either Christ's atoning work does what he said. When he said it is finished, did he mean that? Because it doesn't seem finished if now he's got to hope and pray and wait that someone actually believes. That's troubling for me. Because it is finished means mission accomplished. Work complete. In fact, when he prayed to the Father, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. Well, either he completed it or he didn't complete it because now he's got to wait and hope that someone believes. And you may not have thought about this, but think about this. You'd have to concede that the potential of Christ actually failing, that his death on the cross would be in vain. What if no one believed? But he didn't fail, did he? He did not fail. Now look, I know this position is held because we want to believe, right, that salvation is available to all. Have we not just spent two weeks now looking at Paul saying, God desires all people to be saved. Guess what your job is, church? Pray for all kinds of people. Extend the gospel, the offer of the gospel to everyone without exception, without discrimination. You have no idea whom God has appointed to eternal life. You have no idea who the elect are. Preach the gospel. That's all we've been called to do. Pray for the salvation of all men. That's what we're called to do. These other things belong in the wheelhouse of God. This is why I can hold these complementary truths in hand. There's a tension there, but I am not going to resolve it. And neither should you. Just accept it, affirm it, and praise God. That he ransoms and redeems. Even though we can't make sense of all of this. Last, give you another thing to contemplate. If Christ died for the sins of all people. And someone dies apart from faith in Christ. And they die in their unbelief. If we're saying Christ paid for their sins. Even though they've rejected Christ and died in their unbelief. If Christ died for the sin of unbelief. Did he not then die for that sin of unbelief? That is actually sending them to hell? That sounds like an injustice on the part of God, and we know there's no such thing. Furthermore, if Christ was punished for the sins of everyone, every single person, all of the sins of all the people for all time, then it seems a little cruel and unjust of God than to then punish again an individual who's rejected Christ if those sins had already been punished in Christ Jesus. That's a little challenging to defend from what we know to be true about the justice of God. Your sins are either punished in Christ or you will absorb that punishment eternally in everlasting torment if you've denied Christ, if you've rejected the gracious offer of our God. I believe Scripture teaches that Christ's work is perfect and complete. 
that what the Father purposed for all eternity to purchase a people for his Son, to ransom and redeem them for his glory, is exactly what Christ accomplished as our mediator. You may believe different. It's okay. We're not going to war over this. But I don't apologize for this truth I see in Scripture that I believe to be true here. Jesus came to give his life a ransom for many, is what he says in Mark chapter 10. Notice he didn't say all, but for many. In fact, he does save many. This is, this is a confidence we have in proclaim the gospel. John's vision in chapter 7, multitudes, that's a lot of people. A lot of people will be saved. He has ransomed and redeemed a lot of people. Praise God for that. Jesus said that his sheep hear his voice and they come to him. He said he was the door and anyone who entered by him will be saved. Not might be, but will be saved. And his blood was shed in payment and satisfaction of God's holy requirements. He didn't die, brothers and sisters, just to make us savable. He died to save us. Not to make us rescuable, but to actually rescue us. That should fill you with assurance, brothers and sisters. We call that view definite or particular atonement. I don't have time to go into, my goodness, how fast time flies here when we're having fun. (laughs) Here's a beautiful thing. Christ didn't die hoping someone would believe in him. Christ died knowing he would actually redeem all that the Father was given him. Hallelujah. It works. It's done. His redemption accomplishes exactly what he said it would do. Praise God for that. Titus 2.14. Talking about this, he says, Who gave himself for us, talking about Jesus, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good work. Look at the verbs used there. These are active verbs, right? He's accomplishing this work. Purification, redemption. We're his own possession. It accomplishes exactly what God decreed for it to accomplish. All right, well, here's the main takeaway of the passage. We could talk about those things a lot, but here's the main takeaway from this passage. You and I cannot limit the scope of the church's mission. I don't want you to miss that and all of the theological things we're trying to disclose and, and that are presented here in this passage. Prayers must be, be prayed for all kinds of people. We don't pray selectively, we pray indiscriminately. I want us to be praying for everyone in our community. No matter what socioeconomic level of life they're in, no matter what ethnic group, whether they're rich, poor, educated, or uneducated, we're to make prayers for all kinds. We're to pray for those who are in high positions over us. We're to pray for peace. We're, we're to pray that the gospel could advance unhindered. We're to preach the gospel to all kinds of people. We're to extend it to them without exception. We do not withhold. And you think, what church does that? I promise you there's a lot of churches who do that. Their focus is to reach a certain class of people and that's it. And if someone who doesn't look like that class of people shows up, they're not quite welcome. And you're like, how could they do that? They do that. This is what's being addressed here. This is the very sin that Paul is addressing in there. I mean, he, this is dealt in other apostolic teachings as well. Does not James rail on those who are rich and take advantage of the poor? 
Like this happens, right? Because there's nothing new under the sun. This is the sinful inclinations of the human heart. Our tendency to exclude, our tendency toward elitism, our tendency to forget our mission. We cannot forbid or limit the offer of the gospel. Cannot forget the life-saving mission of the church. Paul writes in 7, and we're closing with this, as the final grounds for the call to offer all kinds of prayer to all kinds of people and to offer the gospel to everyone, he says he was appointed a preacher, an apostle, right, and a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. God appointed him to that task. Again, we saw this a couple of weeks ago. Paul serves as this example that if God can save Paul, God can save anyone. If God could take a persecutor and a blasphemer and an insolent opponent, an arrogant opponent of Christianity and rescue him and transform him, then who cannot be saved? No, anyone can be saved. And he's going to the nations, right? This gospel is to go to all the nations. That's where the vision of chapter 7 of Revelation just finds the the fulfillment of all these things. He's going to the nation, not just to the Jews. Now, that word apostle means a sent one, apostolos. We are a sent people. I know of a church that's named that. She could check it out. But we're sent people. We're also heralds, right? What does a herald do? A herald would go through a town in a loud voice, announce a message, broadcast a message. That's what you and I do wherever we are. We're not apostles. There's no modern day apostles. Not like Paul, not like Peter, not like James, not like John. But we're all sent. We're all to herald the good news and we're all to make disciples. We're to teach. To teach is to instruct. To instruct in what? Everything Jesus taught. Everything Jesus commanded. Matthew 28. That's our job. We're sent, we're heralds, and we're teachers. We announce this faith. We announce the good news. We proclaim the gospel in faith and in truth. Why? Because there's one God and one mediator. And all people must be included in the prayer and proclamation of the church. That means that that God's desire... And what Christ has done in ransoming for himself a people, right, shows a concern for all that you and I must have. It's a responsibility for all kinds of people that you and I must share in. That means we're called to urgent witness. That means we're called to fervent prayer. And you and I have to see this correlation between the progress of the gospel in our community and in our world and the prayers of God's people in the church. They go hand in hand. They are inseparable. And my prayer is that God would grant us his desire to see all people saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That our proclamation of the gospel and the prayers for the salvation of all kinds of people would result in the increase of worship to the one true God in our city and all of the surrounding cities. My prayer is also that our hearts would overflow And thanksgiving and gratitude for Christ's work on our behalf to ransom us and give us a new life in Him. The mission of our Lord Jesus would prevail and that our mediator would be praised. And that the nations would bow the knee and worship to the one true God and our one great mediator and redeemer, Jesus Christ. Church, 
Let us never forget our missional priorities to pray and to proclaim the good news to all.